from Ruth 4. It's the last of our series in the book of Ruth. Um, Next week we'll be starting up uh, uh, a series of questions, uh, and uh, you'll uh, see a bit more about that later. Um, But uh, we're finishing up Ruth, uh, and so we'll be reading from Ruth 4, and you guys know these are kind of long narratives, so uh, bear with me as we read from page 5. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer uh, had fin- had he-, he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, "Come over here, my friend, and sit down." So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, "Sit here," and they did so. Then he came to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people, Today... You are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have a standing in in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring of the Lord. Through the offspring, through the offspring, the Lord gives you by this woman, this young woman. May your family like. Oh gosh, excuse me, guys. Through the offspring, the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who is the day, who has this day, who this day has not left without a kinsman redeemer. Maybe he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. I'm uh, Howard Brown, the senior pastor here at Christ Central Church, and welcome you this morning. Um, I just was feeling a little claustrophobic because normally this all is not this close to me, but I think we'll be all right. Um, 
This is our last sermon in the book of Ruth. And we will, as uh, Pastor Giorgio mentioned, begin a new sermon series next week. And that sermon series will be entitled, A Series of Questions. And uh, Pastor Giorgio is going to open the first of these um, beginning next week with, Why Jesus? Why Jesus? I'll be gone to St. Louis for a week or so and for a much-needed break. And so he will also follow that sermon series, Why Jesus, with another sermon called, why community. Now, this sermon series will address deeply the vision here at Christ Central Church, so I really hope that you'll be able to be here um, during those sermon series. And um, I'll miss you for a couple of weeks, but I'm hoping to come back uh, rested and excited um, to join in and finish this next sermon series, um, I think, that is close to the heart of Christ Central Church. But first, let's go ahead and um, finish Ruth today. Last week, from chapter 3, we see Ruth laying at the feet of Boaz. And when she did that, she was petitioning him for marriage, of which Boaz takes up and thus goes to the city gates where where the elders and and judges and legal witnesses would hang out to hear uh, cases like an open court. So uh, you didn't get jury duty. You just happened to be at the city gates. It's an open area in the city, and people would come there to deal with legal legal issues, and and, and the elders would be there, and they'd have people that say, yes, we're witnesses. We saw what happened. And so Boaz goes there to make appeal to the one who has rights to marry Ruth Before he does, calling for that kinsman redeemer whose name is not mentioned here, closer than he is to take Ruth and to make him and ask him to redeem the land. And in doing so, redeem Ruth and Naomi's land lost to be lost in the death of their husbands. In doing so, as is his hope, if the kinsman redeemer does not take up the cause of Ruth, In marrying her and taking on the burden of the land, then Boaz will be free to have Ruth. And that's what happens here. But these legal proceedings cannot and should not be ripped from the context of the Hebrews' relationship with their God. And so this legal system with Boaz's legal appeal and heart in doing so, they clearly reflect and are in response to God's own appeal and heart for his people to be the redeemer of his people. In the context of dating and engagement or marriage and our real or maybe our fantastic thoughts of it, what makes a good catch? What makes a good catch? I think we can agree on some things that make someone a good catch. They are physically attractive to us or they hear and understand us. We communicate well with them. They know us and they still love us. They adore us. They are secure, maybe socially and financially. And finally, they don't have a lot of baggage. And if you happen to have a lot of baggage, a good catch will carry it with you or even for you. A good catch. Kelly and I have had the opportunity to do premarital counseling for a number of couples. And according to the purposes and goals of of premarital counseling, inevitably the truth comes out. Good and bad. Of who they are really planning to marry. 
You should see the shocked faces. Sometimes I'm just—it's just hilarious. Later we laugh because we're like, "Yep, this is the person you're married. This is what they're saying. They're not going to change, possibly, and you're not going to be able to change them." And just the faces of horror, you know. But this is only to prepare them for what will happen over a hundred times in the course of a normal marriage. Your good catch will waver between being uh, more than you could have ever expected or your worst nightmare. Let's face it. No one here is a good catch. You and I have too much baggage and stuff. And so fallen human beings are left trusting that instead of being the good catch, somehow, somewhere, some way, someone will be able to be a good catch for you. As for Ruth, there is but one good catch, a redeemer, you know. Someone who will do what is impossible for us to do without them. To know and still love us. To be good to and for us. Like Naomi and Ruth, we need a redeemer. A savior, a rescuer and lover of us and our condition. A good catch for not so good people. We see that Boaz, a good catch, does what was impossible For Ruth and Naomi to do. Now the last verse we have in chapter 3 reads this way. This is after uh, uh, Ruth lays at the feet of Boaz to petition him in marriage. Then Naomi said, wait my daughter until you find out what happens. For the man, that's Boaz, will not rest until the matter is settled today. Ruth and Naomi recognizes that they are powerless to make the situation right. They can't achieve wholeness or security or value through self-rightness or self-righteousness. First of all, they were women. They were not able to appeal in certain arenas. Not only women, they were in debt. They were widowed, living in a world and according to laws that did not allow them to be powerful to make their situation right. Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, alone had and has the standing to right Naomi and Ruth's situation, to go in and reconcile the issues of, of their widowhood, to, to be a legal pleading voice on their behalf, to be heard for them, to intercede for them, to redeem them. And as we can see, this also meant that Ruth and Naomi were powerless to make promises. Powerless to to begin the marriage contract, to make a legal vow to be engaged, to make promises before witnesses that they would be engaged to be married. In Ruth and Boaz's society, the the marriage license or, or rights was pursued by the kinsman redeemer. And the vows, the legal promises, the weight of engagement and the marriage arrangement back then were very one sided. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. 
This is after the other kinsman says, you can buy it for yourself. You can have Ruth in all her situations. And verse 9 says, then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have brought, bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and Kilion and Maon, and I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. Boaz makes the promises here to care for Ruth. For the promise for marriage is Boaz's now to live up to. He alone is the kinsman redeemer. In the presence of witnesses, as the kinsman redeemer, he's the only one that can be held accountable. Contracted to redeem Ruth and her situation. And through this, we learn what a redeemer does. A redeemer, in this case, a kinsman redeemer, does what is impossible for the one in need to do for themselves. A redeemer makes right what can't be made self-right. A redeemer redeemer makes and takes the responsibility of promises to save and care. And these legal procedures and definitions are a result of the Hebrew society and people. For the Jews were a people who once were without a name, without a purpose, without a land. They were once a people in slavery, without hope to ever be free, but were redeemed by the God of Abraham. They were declared and called righteous by faith in God's ability to save them. And then, of course, they were held secure by the promises God made to care and be merciful to them. Promises made public in the witness of Scripture. And God's miraculous appearances to them. You see, the Jews in the Bible were and were never called to be self-righteous. Never called to be self-assured. Never called to be self-religious people. They were special and redeemed because a righteous God who would and could never lie, a faithful, merciful God, engaged himself to them. And redemption, salvation, whatever you want to call it, has not changed for us today. As a matter of fact, it has become even that much more clearer in the person of Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. The Bible describes Jesus as the mediator between God and sinful man. The mediator of righteousness. That he is the Lamb of God. That Jesus has come to be the Redeemer of humankind to by his actions justify us. Declare us righteous before God's holy law. A law that we have broken. To become as the lamb a suffering and bleeding promise. Hung on a cross in public spectacle. Declaring this. I promise to redeem my people, my blood for their righteousness. Let the whole world know that God and Jesus suffered public humiliation. For the legal righteousness of sinners who could not make things right. For themselves. Yet, you and I still fight to be self-justified, self-righted, self-made. I mean, we we always we're always looking for for personal ways what to be better, 
to be more secure. We, we look to be made right by comparison. We're better than that person. We're more disciplined than them. We're, we're smarter than they are. Or we act and live on statements like, you know what? I really need to get my life straight today. Or we make these moral promises to ourselves and, and maybe to God too that we will change, that we'll be better through behavior modifications to be good enough to be accepted and, and good enough to be loved and, and good enough to be God's. And as many of us have had to learn in rude awakenings and failures in suffering and, and blistering under this heavy cover of, of moral makeup, your self righteousness. Your moral promises are not heard in heaven's courts. Let me put it this way. Your promises to be good enough for God to love you and accept you, your promises that you will change your behavior enough to be God's accepted people, heaven doesn't believe you. Your promises and pitches of righteousness are not valid. As a matter of fact, they would be like in Ruth's day. If a woman came in to be engaged and make promises, our attempts at self-righteousness, our personal actions that we think give us right standing to ourselves and God and this world outside of Jesus are outright offensive to heaven. You know what it would be like? There is this beautiful and believable and earnest request being made for your soul in heaven by your Redeemer and a request made in his suffering and blood and you interrupt their closing arguments with foolishness. Yes, Jesus, you died on a cross, but but let me kind of help it out a little bit. Yes, you came to this earth and you lived perfectly. Yes, you promised to redeem mankind, but, 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 but wait a minute, Lord. I think I can make some promises, too. I think I can be righteous, too. Literally, self-righteousness, trying to be good enough outside of Jesus, is contempt of God's court of justice. What is this passage calling us to do in the context of Scripture? Like Naomi and Ruth to hush, to rest, to say thank you, and then yes to the Savior's call and ability to and, and right to make you right, to keep the promises for your soul and for your world and for your issues. For there is a Redeemer for your soul who has publicly and offered and gives righteousness for sinners and has promised to be yours forever. I think one of the things that drives us to seek in and of ourselves value and freedom from guilt is that we believe that we alone know how valuable we are and we alone know how ugly inside we are. Which of these two extremes we experience as we look in the proverbial mirror of our lives, two extremes that we would not dare put in the hands or in view of somebody else. But the kinsman redeemer, in his deliberation, expresses here before the courts what he knows all about Ruth. He gives her value and he promises to take her debt. 
The chapter earlier best explains the urgency and deliberation of Boaz on behalf of Ruth. In, in chapter 3, if you don't have it before you, I'm going to read it to you. In, in verse 10, it says this. as He finds out she's um, laying at his feet, petitioning for marriage. He says this, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, richer, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am, I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives... I will do it. Lie here until morning. Boaz values Ruth. She has worth to him. And we can see in the proceedings, he confirms and gives value to her in public courts, which is requested and sought in two ways. Number one, she is so valuable. He wants to bring that other kinsman, call him on the carpet and say, you redeem her. She is worth it. But not not to buy her, but have the right to marry her. Or number two, as he had hoped, that he would be able to do it himself. But in his valuing of her, he also realizes and deals with her debts. Look again at these procedures. We're going to read it one more time, beginning at verse 2. No, no, let's not, let's not begin there. Let's go to verse um, 4. Boaz said, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you, that's a kinsman redeemer, buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And so the kids of Redeemer says, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. As at this, the kids of Redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it. Because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And so they exchange sandals here. Now in earlier times in Israel for the redemption and transfer of property to become final. One party uh, took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed the sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today! You are witnesses. So this offer is made and the other kinsman redeemer jumps at the chance. I will redeem it, he says. I will take Ruth until her debts, until her baggage, if you will, is disclosed. Then he responds after hearing the debts, the responsibility of having her, the burden of carrying and buying this land. He says, wait a minute. I can't do that. I don't have the means. It will bring financial harm and ruin to what I have. He is not willing and thus unable to sacrifice what he has to carry the debts of Ruth and Naomi and thus gives his shoe to Boaz. And Boaz breaks out 
in this semi-praise of, of declaration that he has been given the go-ahead and has the ability and right to restore Ruth's value and take on her debt, understand what he is celebrating here. It's not what Ruth can give him, but the glory he gets from taking care of Ruth. The shoe was symbolic of, of whatever you walked on, like land, was yours. So to give your shoe was to give what was rightly yours. Yours uh, to walk on, your property, property to another. And so Boaz is agreeing in celebration to take all the debt, to take all her baggage, to live and pay for Ruth and Naomi's messy situation and lives, to even take on the weight of family issues. I mean... Forget the shoe thing here. Boaz seems like the real heel, if you will, in this story. I mean, he gets the ball and the chain. He gets her student loans and Macy's bills and the big mortgage on the house her, her mama and, and her husband had. And he likes it. He's happy to have the bills. Give them to me. What's the interest rate? 25%? Yeah, I got it. I'm thinking, what kind of crazy man is this? He is a redeemer. Once again, the spiritual relationship of the Hebrews with their God makes allowance in court, a, a gracious allowance in court, to be like their God was to them. You see, they worship a God that gave them value and valued them as his own possession. But in that, God knew he was making relationship with the people who would fail to keep their promises, who would literally hate him in hard times, who would suffer from sin amnesia, forgetting how loving he was, even chasing after gods, other gods. God engaged himself to a people who had serious sins. And so he put before them the sacrificial system, which by the blood of innocent animals, they could be forgiven. The debt of their sins could be washed away, which was really an earthly practice of a higher reality. God in relationship with people as the Redeemer knows and takes on their baggage. And it says this to us. God knows your moral credit reports. He knows the history of your sins. He knows the potential of our hidden issues. He has rightly and clearly seen and diagnosed what we may have hidden in the dark from others and even ourselves. All kind of thoughts, all kind of actions. No one knows about but you and God. And God, the Redeemer, says with triumphant declaration as Boaz, I get glory from taking the weight of your sin so that you can be mine. God says, I will carry your heavy load. I will take your baggage. I will take the moral weight of your condemnation and sin so that you can be free to be valued and given value by me. All of you here, me included, we're damaged goods. No father in their right mind would give their perfect daughter, or in the biblical case, son, to you. I mean, how can I say it? We've been around the block a few times. We've dated a lot. You are a potentially cheating spouse. 
You still love that guy or girl that was your first in college. Of course, I speak mainly in metaphor here for sin and sin nature. But you want, some of us just want to use God to keep your moral moral portfolio up. You just want to say you go to church. Some of us have all sorts of family issues and sins. I mean, you are indebted by the actions of others close to you or around you, people who have hurt you and weighted you with all sorts of horrific and abusive things. You and I got some real problems. And God in Jesus Christ says, my son will take them. He will suffer for your stuff. Your burdens, your baggage, your complications, and the value that is his, he will give to you. When I consider even myself how I sometimes posture and pretend and and cover up the ugliness and baggage of my sin and the many ways I have been sinned against by others, all of us have have tried to play the cover-up game like we are okay. But I want you to think what God has done, that if you're God's child, what is he committed to do? Jesus has committed to love fakes like you and me. God is committed to take on the baggage of most of us who are like, I'm okay. How you doing? Great. How's it going? I'm righteous. And God knows you're lying. I mean, God knows your heart is deceptive. He knows you can be a fake and he marries you anyway. He has decided to become engaged to users and addicts of all sorts and all kind of unfaithful people like you and me. I just described the church, by the way. And he has agreed to redeem them. God has decided to marry that one. Mom and daddy said, don't marry them. Or your friends, I don't think that's a good idea. He ain't got no job. But he got plenty of bills. He takes on the responsibility of the closets of our hearts. He marries into our utter rebellion and ungratefulness and family histories and all kind of counseling issues y'all got. And he gives them freedom and love. This truth calls us to lay it down, to be known. Not living is hidden from Jesus because you're not. He sees it. I don't care how much moral and and fake and I'm okay makeup and I go to church makeup you put on. He sees it. He's calling us to stop being afraid that, that he might know us and then he'll reject us. He knows and has decided to take humanity on. Yes, you and I really are that bad. And we're worse. And yes, Jesus is really that good and even better. Jesus says to us, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me. For I have come to you to give you rest. In other words, I have come to be your redeemer. I am the one who takes the shoe. I am the one who gives and restores value and dignity and takes the load and weight and debt of your sin on myself. 
And we have seen in this legal deliberation something else about the Redeemer. And thus something about the very character and person of God the Redeemer. What is it? God is good. His word is good. He is faithful. His love is good. God is kind. Now look at the promise hope here in verse 11 and 12. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Epaphratha and, and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And then we see Boaz come through and, and they are married in, in verse 13. And, and, and more than that, a son is born to Ruth, who will become an ancestor to King David. And thus famous, and more importantly, this son Obed, along with Ruth and Boaz, find themselves in the lineage of Christ. They become God's very family. God's people, like the, like, the, like the elders declare, set apart famous, that is, because they have King David in their lineage. And this, the readers of the day, would have seen as a sure sign of God's faithfulness to, uh, faithfulness to his promise to redeem his people. That Ruth and Naomi's condition, paralleling the issues of the Israelites who are without a king at this time and struggling spiritually, what does it say? God is faithful to his promises to redeem his people from sin and this sinful world against any circumstance, against any time constraint, whether Jew or Gentile, God keeps his promises. And we can see that more clearly than they now, how faithful God is, not because David was in the family line, but because Jesus is in the family. And if we see that, what do we learn? God is not a liar. God's not a scam artist. He wasn't just trying to lead Ruth and Naomi on. That There was nothing in us or outside of us, whether our sins or our sense of self-righteousness, that can stop the Redeemer God. For bringing salvation through Jesus to his people. I say this because many of us can't see the Redeemer because of how evil and guilty you are and you feel. How evil this world is. But the story of Ruth should pull back all of that and shine light on the truth not just as a good Bible story to reflect upon like a moral kid's fairy tale, but as truth that as sure as Jesus came out from Ruth who actually lived, he actually extends and keeps his promises to people like you in the real world with real problems. He's a real God who tells the truth acts on the truth that he is a savior and redeemer of fallen and failing people in this world that out of the mess of your life and world in his redeeming of it like Ruth Jesus will rise out of the ashes of your lives Jesus will arise out of the impossible Jesus will arise and save us this account bookends Naomi's original return to her homeland when she had nothing. 
When she came back after her husband died in a foreign land, she had no seen or perceived hope. She even said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara because I'm embittered. I've been beaten. I've been torn. I left full and I returned empty. Empty. Look how this ends for her. Verse 14. The women, the same ones who came up to Naomi after she came back and was like, Naomi, is that you? You look kind of beaten and torn. (laughs) These same women said to Naomi this. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He'll renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. This story is more than a happily ever after story. This is a true reflection of how God is. And he is kind. God is gracious. He in his faithful desires and decides to bless Ruth and Naomi. And we are left asking a question about this God and his treatment of Naomi. Why? Why does he bless her? Why is he faithful? Why is he truthful to broken and sinful people? Because the God of the Bible is good. He is kind. The first chapter of Ruth uses this word hesed, which means loving kindness. The God of the Bible is loving kind. This genealogy says that the same God, the kind of God who filled and empty Naomi with Ruth and Boaz, and eventually and ultimately Jesus, will fill and has filled you the same. You and I can rely in our sins, in our problems, on a God who will be kind on behalf of his people. Like Naomi, God has given us all kinds of Ruths, if you will, which are means by which we get the comfort of Jesus. Ruth's like church and like community groups and more in particular, like scripture and prayer and the sacraments and fellowship because God was and is kind to give us Jesus. He gives us rest for our souls. He gives us forgiveness and freedom from our sins. He gives us joy for our tears. And as Jesus carries us and keeps us and cleanses us, we are caught by him. And in that Jesus is and becomes the one good catch for our hearts and our lives. Let us pray.